Let's open our Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter number 44. Isaiah chapter 44. Good to see a good crowd here this morning in the house of God. That's a blessing. The uh, crew A must not have communicated with crew B, and you all accidentally showed up on the same day. Amen. So I'm thrilled that you're here, excited for what God's going to do. I want to thank all of our visitors, especially being here. Uh, what a blessing that that is, and uh, we're encouraged. It's always a blessing when somebody comes the first time. And it's always a miracle when they come the second time. Amen. So I'm thrilled that you're here today. I trust that God is going to work in your heart. And uh, it's been Manhattan, the Lord being good to us. Isaiah chapter number 44 this morning. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 21. We'll read just three verses this morning. And then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Isaiah chapter 44, verse number 21. The Bible says this. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee, thou art my servant, O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us gather in this place. What a privilege it is to get to be in your house. Lord, I pray that as we gather around your word this morning, our hearts would be sober and attentive to the truth of it. Lord, may you work in our hearts and lives. I don't know the heart of any person in this room. It wouldn't be a surprise, Lord. You you chose 12 disciples. One of them was a lost man. The Bible calls him a devil. It wouldn't be surprising in a group this size for there to be somebody under the sound of my voice that is lost and undone. Lord, you and you alone know that, but I pray that if that's true, you'd show that to them. Show them their need of Christ, that he's their only hope and help. But show them, Lord, that the price is paid, that salvation is available free and full if they'll just come and receive it. Lord, I want you to work in the hearts of those that are saved as well. Lord, may you arrest our attention, our focus, our devotion, and fix it all on Christ because he's worthy. Lord, I love you. I thank you for loving us. And I ask all this in Christ's Amen. I want you to notice a phrase with me in our text this morning. It's in verse number 23. Sing, O ye heavens. Then I like this next phrase, for the Lord hath done it. You know, we're getting ready to study the last half of the book of Isaiah, and I enjoyed thoroughly getting to teach through the first portion of it. Uh, and the theme of the book of Isaiah is God is my salvation. In fact, that's what Isaiah's name means. It means salvation is of Jehovah. And the, the book of Isaiah, the theme of the entirety of the book is that salvation is of the Lord. That He is the only source of salvation. That He is the only God that gives salvation. That He is the only hope of salvation. And that He is the repository. If we'll come to Him, He'll give us salvation if we'll merely ask for it. Over and over again in the book of Isaiah, you find God showing up and showing out and delivering His people when they have need of it. I'm glad we've got that kind of a God. 
I'm glad we don't have some deaf and blind and silent God seated up in the heavens, uninterested in mankind, in man's brokenness, in man's helplessness. That's not the God of the Bible. That may be the God of some atheist imagination, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a saving God. He is a personal God. What I mean by that is not that He is relative to our perspective or interpretation, but I mean He's a God that has to do with people. He loves people. He loves sinners and He desires to save them. If you're here today and you don't know God, it's not because God doesn't love you and because God doesn't want you. It's because you've chosen to push Him away. But I've got news for you. You don't have to do that. He loves you. He cares about you. He stands waiting to save you. His arm is not shortened. His ear is not heavy. He's able to reach you. He's able to hear you. If you'll cry out to Him, He will save you by His grace. And all through the book of Isaiah, over and over again, we're shown how that God saves. And here in Isaiah chapter 44, we have this exultant song of praise for the Lord having accomplished something. I love that phrase, the Lord hath done it. You know, I was raised, I had a couple siblings, we're raising a couple boys, and it's interesting the different connotations that that phrase, they've done it, can have depending on the setting. Amen. Uh, there are times that it can mean something very bad. I can't tell you the times that growing up something would break in the house. Well, Toby did that, all right? And life's unfair, I'm telling you. And half the time I did do it, amen. But uh, even my boys, young as they are, oftentimes if we have to holler at them, fuss at them a little bit. I know you don't never have fuss at your kids, but I fuss at mine sometimes. Sometimes when we fuss at them, we'll say, what's going on in there? And one of them will say, he did it. You don't even know what it is yet, Amen. But you know it's bad if they want to soften the whole interaction by beginning by saying, He did it. But you know, here in the context of our passage, the phrase is not negative. It is not a shifting or avoiding of blame. And there's a couple other ways that that phrase, I've done it, or it's been done, or so-and-so's done this, might be used in exclamation like this. I think one of the ways you might use it is if a great need has been met. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, if you had something in your life that you desperately needed to be done, to be accomplished, and someone came along and did for you what you could not do for yourself and met that need, you might say, hey, they've done it, they've accomplished. Think another way you might use that phrase, not only if a great need has been met, but if a great deed has been done. Something beyond the ability of the average individual. Something that is unimaginable to human capability was accomplished. You might say they've done it. They've achieved it. They've accomplished it. Oftentimes throughout human history, there's been great achievements that have been met uh, through God's grace and help by mankind. And we oftentimes, when somebody accomplishes something or does something, we might say, I can't believe it. They've done it. They've actually done it. Here in our text, We find the Lord commanding Israel to sing out in praise of Him of some great thing that has been done. A great need has been met. A great deed has been done. Now, what is this great need that has been met? What is this great deed that has been done? Well, he goes on to describe it in verse 23. He says, For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. In other words, in the context of the passage, it's speaking of God's dealings with Israel as a nation. But certainly, man, we don't just have half a Bible. We've got a whole Bible. 
we can look beyond just that simple application of the context and see that, yes, the Lord has done a work in Israel and is doing a work in Israel. And one day, hey, listen, the nation of Israel, after they've gone through the tribulation, after they've come out the other side having practiced a real faith in their Messiah, not having rejected Him, they will know Him in His grace and salvation and they will say the Lord has done it. He's accomplished it. But we don't just have to look forward to that day. We can look back towards another day when God accomplished something far greater than just the vouchsafing of a nation when He accomplished the salvation of sinners that would come to Him. In other words, I don't just look forward to the thing they'll sing praise about, but I look backwards to the thing that I, in this day of grace, sing praise about. I look to the salvation of Christ on Calvary. I would say this morning that every single one of us that knows the Lord has reason to sing praise for what He's done. And every single person here that doesn't know the Lord, that you above all need to know that the Lord hath done it. That He has made a way for sinners to be redeemed, forgiven, saved, to know God personally, to have a life that, that, that counts, to have a life that is precious, to have a life that not just survives but thrives, and to live eternally with God and to enjoy fellowship with Him. You say, preacher, what are you saying? I'm saying if you need to be saved, you can be saved because the Lord hath done it. He's made a way. When I read this passage, there's two things that immediately uh, shine in this little phrase, the Lord hath done it. And I want you to notice them very quickly. Number one, this statement declares to us that a this great work that's been done is a divine work. The Bible doesn't just say a person has done it. The Bible doesn't just say it has been done. The Bible ascribes all glory and all credit unto God who has accomplished this work because this work that had to be accomplished could only be accomplished by God. Can I tell you that man is helpless to save himself? You say, preacher, prove that. Well, has anyone ever done it? Has anyone ever done it? Man in and of himself is incapable. You can try to do all the self-reformation. You can try to give to all the charities. Uh, you can try to, you know, pray your way in. You can try to go to church and be baptized a hundred times and none of that will set you right with God because what needs to be done in the heart and life of a sinner can't be done by a sinner. It has to be done by God Himself. Man can't do it. The preacher can't do it. The evangelist can't do it. The church as an institution cannot do it. But God God can do it, and God has done it. This great work is divine, but not only that, notice this great work is done. The Bible doesn't say the Lord will do it. The Bible says the Lord hath done it. And I'm reminded when I read this passage of Scripture that all that is necessary for a sinner to know Christ has already been accomplished. It only needs to be appropriated by faith. You don't have to work your way in. You don't have to hope your way in. Hey, listen, I understand we approach Christ by faith, but we are saved by grace. It is not my faith that is going to get me to heaven. It is His grace that is getting me to heaven. My faith is how I approach unto Him. I'm not hoping my way to get there. I have a sure hope steadfast for the soul rooted in God's grace. And so when we read this passage, we're reminded that this is not a prospective work we're hoping to be done. But what God has done has already been accomplished. And all that is needful, all that is necessary for the sinner to come to Christ is for them to recognize and believe in what God has already done for them. You don't have to help Him save you. Uh, You don't have to hope He saves you. You can know that He saves you by His grace because He has accomplished Considering this phrase, the Lord hath done it, a great need has 
deed has been done. This work is divine. It's finished. It's done. God has accomplished it. I want you to look at our text and see how it tells the story of this great work that God has done. Begin in verse 21 with me. The Bible says this, remember these, O Jacob and Israel. Now let me pause there because I'd be remiss if I didn't give you the context. Uh, Isaiah is encouraging Israel to consider the fruitlessness and and, and the foolishness of idolatry. He is uh, preaching to a nation who even then was rife with idolatry and he's telling them don't forget that the idols don't save don't forget that the idols don't bring peace don't forget that the idols don't bring satisfaction he then turns his attention to what does bring peace he turns his attention to what does bring satisfaction and listen i'm glad that god he doesn't how do i say this god doesn't just sit back and point to how broken we are he reaches down to fix our brokenness He doesn't just look at us and and, and mock and scoff at our helplessness, but He is our helper. He is our refuge. And so He tells them, remember that these are of no effect. And then He says, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant. O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. This may seem like just poetic language, high poetry that's given to bring them to a place of recollection. But I find in this little phrase sort of a a microcosmic story being told of what God has done in creation. Think with me for a moment about the plan that he devised. You know, if he's accomplished this, if he in and of himself has secured and procured salvation for mankind, then it must not simply have ended with him, it must have began with him. And do you know that's exactly what the Bible teaches? God didn't just create mankind, throw them out into the cosmos and hope for the best. Before ever mankind had sinned and fallen, God already had a plan to deal with that sin. The book of Revelation calls Christ the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What does it mean by that? Well, he's the sacrificial lamb. In the Old Testament, a lamb would have to be sacrificed to expiate the sins of the worshiper that would come unto God. And most of the sacrifice, there were other things, turtle doves and bullocks, but the chief animal that would be given would be a lamb that would be sacrificed. Whenever John sees Jesus coming in uh, John chapter number 1, he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. In other words, all those other lambs couldn't do it, but this sacrifice, God's own Son, the Lamb of God, He can accomplish it. The Bible says He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So before the world was ever created, God had already purposed in His heart to give Christ as a sacrifice on Calvary. In other words, before there was ever sin, there was already a Savior. Before there was ever iniquity and brokenness in mankind, there was already a plan that had been devised. Notice what this plan involved. Notice, number one, the fellowship that God pursued. He says this to Israel, Thou art my servant. It speaks of a deep and intimate relationship with Israel as a people. And while certainly that bears upon them as a nation, it also betrays something about the heart of God. God loves humanity. He desires fellowship with humanity. Think about how easy it would have been for God to have merely reclined in the celestial realm and never dealt with mankind. He didn't have to create us. He didn't have to allow us to sin. He didn't have to do any of that. God, listen, you say, preacher, how much does God love man? Enough to put himself on a cross that we might know him. 
You understand that before he ever reached down into the clay to form Adam, he knew one day that what he formed would nail him to a cross. But he did it nonetheless. Why? Because he desired fellowship with a creation, with a creature that loved him of free will and volitional choice. God desires fellowship with mankind. The extent of that fellowship with Israel was that of servitude. But hey, in this New Testament day of grace, we've got something they never had. For we're not merely servants, we're sons. We're children of God. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of God, we cry, Abba, Father unto Him. We have a familial relationship with God. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. In other words, we're enjoying the fullness of the fellowship that God desired with mankind. I see the fellowship that he pursued. He wanted to know mankind and for mankind to know him. And then I see the forming that he performed. Because of that, the Bible says, I have formed thee, thou art my servant. It denotes the fact that God has with loving care created mankind, created all of creation with a specific purpose and plan in mind. Can I tell you that Calvary, I won't say it's the, it's the culmination of God's plan, but it is certainly the integral point in God's plan for humanity. When you look at Calvary, God's getting things done. God is doing what's necessary for His plan to be moved forward and furthered forward. But before Calvary ever happened, before the law was ever given, God reached down into clay and began to form mankind because He loved him and had a desire and a design for his life. In other words, God knew full well what it would cost. God knew full well what it would take. But he created us anyway. He created you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every thought you've ever had, God is aware of. Everything you've ever said, God is aware of. He knows the number of hairs on your head or lack thereof for some of us. He knows. I guess he knows how many dead follicles still live up there. I don't know. But he knows you. He cares about you. The fact that he created you tells you he has a plan for you. We may begin plans without having any clear, cohesive way of completing the plan. You ever done that? Really, I live my life that way. Amen. If I had to know what I was going to do 30 steps down the road, I'd never take the first step. Amen. But God, when he created mankind, he had a plan. I see the fellowship he pursued. I see the forming he performed. But I like this last phrase. O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I see the faithfulness that he promised. Now, time would fail me to really just expand and explore this the way that I would love to. But when you look at God's plan for humanity, when you talk about dispensations, that may be a word you're not very familiar with, but dispensations are the different uh, the different seasons or the different epochs in which God dealt with mankind in different ways throughout human history. And when you tell the story of what that looks like, and you think about Israel's place in it, you know, God created mankind. He put him in the garden. He made him the arbiter of God's authority. He put all of creation under the dominion of Adam. And he said, you will now rule and govern over creation. He dispensed to Adam his will, his desire. We could use the term revelation. But what happened there in the garden? Well, Adam and Eve, they ate of the fruit. They sinned. They failed mankind messed up. So God then moves from dealing with 
uh, humankind in its entirety, and we move from the age of innocence to the age of uh, the patriarchy. We move from, or not the age of the patriarchy, but the age of conscience. Instead of God looking at mankind and saying, you'll be a master over creation, mankind being part of God's creation had to be mastered in and of himself. And when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in the garden, their conscience was awakened. All of a sudden now you have this age of conscience where God has revealed to them what is right and what is wrong, and now conscience is the means. It is the arbiter of God's justice and God's judgment. When Adam and Eve would do wrong, they didn't have the Holy Spirit living in them like you or I do, saved in this day of grace, but they had their conscience, and their conscience would prick them, and their conscience would condemn them. But the Bible tells us it didn't take very long, and the imagination of every man's thought was only evil continually. Conscience failed to restrain mankind's depravity and degeneracy. 1,600 years of human history, and at the end of it, the world is boiling and roiling and getting ready to tear itself apart. Uh, the conscience has failed in being the arbiter of God's revelation and God's justice. And so what does God do? Well, He sends a universal flood. He destroys the vast majority of mankind. And instead of dealing uh, with an entire uh, world and using conscience to arbitrate His justice, He instead chooses Noah, a man who found grace in the eyes of God. And He begins with the family of Noah. And whenever Noah, at the other end of the flood, steps out on the ark, God gives him an interesting mandate. He gives him the mandate for what we consider to be civil government. He, he allows him to be the, the justice, the sword of God in society. And he says, hey, listen, if man sheds blood, then you'll shed his blood in return. If man takes an eye, you'll take an eye in return. But what do we find? We find that mankind, far from viewing themselves as the stewards of God's justice far from viewing themselves as the sword of God's revelation, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 10, what has man done? They have created the uh, Tower of Babel. They have sought to overthrow the authority of God. They have sought to consolidate their power and influence against the Lord to overthrow His authority. What happened? Well, government failed. Government's still failing, amen? And so what does God do? Well, God scatters the people. He uh, creates different languages confuses the people, and then he calls a man out of one of those people by the name of Abraham. And he calls them out. He calls him from pagan darkness to walk by faith and to know God in trueness and in sincerity. And he begins with a family. And Abraham's family begins sort of the, the, the germ, the seed of God's plan of what he's seeking to do in this world. We could continue on. After they go into Egypt, they become a nation. They come out. God's dealing with this nation. Uh, we understand how that, that nation itself failed when the Lord of glory, the Prince of glory came. Instead of recognizing him, they crucified him. God has now turned his attention to the church age in this dispensation that we're living in. But here's what I'm wanting you to understand. In many ways, Israel was viewed as being the potential of God's plan realized. He wanted them to be what He wanted man to always be. Now we understand that that has not yet been accomplished. But in God's plan, the idea was that you are the avatar, the representative of those that know God and that love God and that come to the realization of God's plan for you as human beings. When God tells Israel, Thou shalt not be forgotten of me, Certainly he is speaking expressly to Israel, but it reminds me of this simple truth. God hasn't given up on mankind. Israel may have failed, and certainly they have. God's not done with them. He's not turned his back on them. He's not through with them. God forbid is how Paul answers that question. 
But no matter how many times man fails, the Adam and Eve in the garden, conscience uh, in the in the uh, pre-Diluvian uh, or antediluvian days, uh, the 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 uh, the human government in the days of Noah doesn't matter when the, the uh, Abraham and his failure uh, in many ways to follow God's promises in the patriarchy, uh, the uh, Egypt as a nation during uh, the time from Egypt all the way down to the diaspora, and even in the church age today, we continually fail Him and fail Him and fail Him. But no matter how many times we fail Him, He never fails us. No matter how many times that we that we mess up, He never messes up. No matter how many times we give up, He never gives up. Thou shalt not be forgotten of Me, He says. In other words, in this plan, God is faithful. This phrase, forgotten, it denotes more than just a recollection of the memory. It has to do with a place of privilege and of status has to do with judicially recognizing someone in what you've offered them. And when he says, thou shalt not be forgotten of me, he's not just simply saying, I I won't be able to recollect you. But what he's saying is, I promise you, I will never turn my back on humanity. Certainly, he has not turned his back on humanity. I see the plan that he devised. But then notice how this came to realization in verse 22. I see the pardon that he delivers. So God had a desire. He, he created mankind because he wanted fellowship with a creature that could love him volitionally, that could love him as, a, as an agent of their own will and own desire. And that's what mankind is. He didn't want angels that mindlessly worshipped him. He wanted those that could taste of and know of his grace that would follow him and that would worship him and love him. How could this be accomplished? He created man, put man in the garden. Man messed up. Man sinned. Man was separated from God. Man could not get to God. How would God remedy this situation? Well, he tells us what he did. He tells us what he's accomplished in verse 22. He says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. What a beautiful verse in it. And you may not have even recognized it at first reading. But in it, we have four important truths about how God has has procured salvation for mankind. What he has done in giving his son on Calvary to die in our stead, in our place, to pay our sin debt. I want you to notice these four truths. Notice, number one, the agent of the pardon. So what do you mean, preacher? Who's the instigator of it? Who is the person that accomplished this salvation? Notice what he says. I have blotted out thy transgression. God leaves no question as to who the person is that has accomplished this great feat, this great deed. It has not been mankind in concert together. It has not been the milk of human kindness has just overwhelmed the darkness of man's sin. It's not been that, that mankind by banding together and, 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 and determining that we're all going to just... And get our bongo drums and sing kumbaya. We've just, we, we, we've loved sin to death. That's not how it's been done. The only hope and the only way that sin could be dealt with was for a perfect God to deal with that sin. So you know what he did? A perfect God dealt with that sin. Your salvation, if you're saved today, it won't be because you earned it. It's not because you're good enough. God isn't picking out a baseball team. Amen. It's, it's not because you got baptized enough. It's because God did something for you that you could not do for yourself. I like how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to be honest, I take every opportunity to read this passage because I just love it. It says in verse number 1, 
Ephesians chapter 2, and you, talking about sinners, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what we were before we got saved. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, For His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sin. So we couldn't help us. We couldn't save us. We were dead in sin. We had no life. We had no agency. We had no ability to do anything to save ourselves. We were dead in sins. Hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Did you notice it over and over and over again? By grace ye are saved, verse number 5. Hey, listen, verse 7, that He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. Verse number 8, for by grace are ye saved through faith. Preacher, what does that word grace mean? Well, it means God's unmerited favor. The fact that He loves us when we are not lovable. The fact that He values us when we are are without value. The fact that He saved us when uh, there was nothing that was salvageable about us. He did so anyway. Not of our own merit or not of our own worth, but by His grace. He is the agent of the pardon. It's not been man that has accomplished it. It is He that has accomplished it. But notice not only the agent of the pardon, notice the extent of the pardon. I like this next phrase. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Isn't that interesting language? Again, if you're not careful, you'll, you'll be tempted just saying, well, that's just high poetry. I mean, that's just, you know, the, that's just the Bible being bobbly, you know. But that's not. No. Uh, these words are there for very specific. There's only four times that the word or the phrase thick cloud is found in your Bible. The book of Jeremiah once, found in the book of Job once. And it's found twice in the book of Exodus. They're both in the same chapter, but I'll just read one of them to you. You say, preacher, what does it mean that he's blotted out my transgressions as a thick cloud? What's he trying to signify? Well, did you know whenever God came to Moses in Exodus chapter 19, do you know what form he came to Moses in? Listen to what it says in verse 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. In other words, God said, when I came to mankind, I came in a thick cloud cloud. He said, my presence, the denseness of my eternal nature is like a thick cloud. He concealed himself within the clouds. You say, preacher, what do you mean by the extent of the pardon that God has offered? Well, here's a good question. God has dealt with our sins. How thoroughly are they dealt with? You know, there's some things in life that you may deal with, but you just got to deal with it again later. I've enjoyed, man, it's been like two weeks since I've mowed my yard. I might never mow it again. I'm kind of liking it. It's real dry and crispy. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I know I see these people out there, you fertilize your yard, make it all nice, and God bless you, man. I mean, that's good. I guess some of us need to act like somebody. But me, I wouldn't care if it was all just gravel. It wouldn't bother me one bit. I, I don't care. 
I want it as burnt and crispy as humanly possible. I want to step in my yard in a dust cloud. Just, You know why? Because every time I spend hours mowing, I'm always thinking, it ain't going to be long, I'm going to be mowing it again. I oftentimes I and my wife has said this before. My wife is is a domestic superhero. She's she's an incredible woman. And and but one of the things that she hates, like most women, she hates laundry. And you any y'all like laundry? My soul. Pray for pray for the liars in the room. Amen. You know, one of the things that's that's tough about doing laundry, you just gonna have to do it again. Tough about washing the dishes. You're just going to have to wash them again. How thoroughly was our sin dealt with? Here's mankind's perspective that God marginally dealt with our sin. That He forgave us a little bit, but if we don't get baptized, it don't hold. That He forgave us a little bit, but if we don't go to a priest and confess things, it don't hold. That He forgave us a little bit, but if we don't live without sin, which I challenge anyone to do, that then it won't hold. But, you know, that's not how the Bible describes him as having dealt with our sins. The Bible says he hasn't just saved us barely. He saved us to the uttermost. And in the language of our text here, you say, preacher, God hid our sins in a thick cloud. He blotted them out as a thick cloud. What is that thick cloud? He is the thick cloud. And in dealing with our sins, he buried them within an eternal God. The Bible says in Romans chapter number three, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, His right. You get what I'm saying here? Not to declare your righteousness, not to declare somebody, but He He came, He said, you got a sin problem. How do we deal with that sin problem? I'll deal with that sin problem. How will I deal with that sin problem? I'll deal with that sin problem by declaring my righteousness for that sin problem. That He might be both just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. He doesn't need your help dealing with with your sin problem. He has dealt with it thoroughly, exhaustively on the cross of Calvary. He doesn't need your promises to deal with his sin problem. He doesn't need your baptism to deal with his sin with your sin problem. He has dealt with it in himself. He did not turn manward to fix sin. He turned inward to fix sin. He sent himself in the likeness of sin and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory, in the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. You say, preacher, that could sort of read a couple different ways. It could be saying He dealt with His sin through Himself or it could be saying that He dealt with that sin on His own. Which is it saying? I say, yes. Yes. What do you mean, preacher? Well, He dealt with it through Himself. He came in the likeness of sin. He bore our sin on the cross of Calvary. Uh, there's no more vivid illustration of this than when dying on the cross. Uh, the Bible says that the sun turned dark uh, for a space of three hours. God drew the shades around Calvary when He dealt with sin by smiting His own Son, when He made His Son to be our sin, and then cursed and judged that sin, uh, that His holiness might be maintained, that His righteousness uh, might be respected. He didn't look towards man and say, you fix it. He said, I'll fix it. And he buried that sin in himself. How did he do that? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You can't save you, but God can 
And he has done what is necessary to save you. He doesn't need your help. He needs your willingness. He doesn't need your promises. He needs your faith. Uh, He doesn't need your uh, renovation. He needs you to be uh, regenerated, to be saved, to have your life changed by His grace. I see the extent of the pardon, and then I see the intent of the pardon. The Bible says the next phrase, return unto me. What's God's desire? Well, what was His desire in the beginning? It was fellowship. And then our sins separated us from God, and God couldn't have the fellowship that He desired. So God set about uh, in our lives and in the human family procuring some means and way that that fellowship could be restored. God's desire is that we know Him personally. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. Say, preacher, what does God want from me? He wants your fellow. He wants a relationship with you. Uh, He doesn't need your money. Uh, He doesn't need your devotion. Uh, He doesn't need your service. What he desires is your fellowship. It's always been the intent, not just that we would go, but that we would come unto him. Uh, We think the reason he died on Calvary was so that we could go free. Well, we do get to go free, but we get to come freely unto him. That was the intent of Calvary. Not that man might be pushed away from him, but that man might be drawn unto him. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. His desire is that you know him personally. I see the intent of the pardon, and then I see the payment of the pardon. He says, for I have redeemed thee. Redeemed, I paid the price. There was a debt that was owed. And I went and paid it, and now you belong to me. Here's what he's trying to get Israel to understand. You're mine. Twice he said in this text, thou art my servant. You were on the slave auction block, and I paid the price for you. I bought you with my blood. You don't belong to you now. You belong to me now. The New Testament reinforces this in the life of the believer when it says, what, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Here's what happens when you get saved. You get bought out. New management. Sorry. You get bought out. It ain't your name on the billboard anymore. It's His name on the billboard now. It's not your year-end goals that matter anymore. It's His year-end goals that matter. And in your life, when He saves you, you become not just the child of God, you become the possession of God. You're His. Yes, He's yours. Praise His holy name. Uh, But we don't forget that He's ours. But we pretty often forget that we're His. And the intent of it, the desire of it, is that we return unto Him. And to procure this, He's paid our sin debt. When I read this passage, I see the plan He devised. I see the pardon He delivers But then in verse 23, I see the praise that he deserves. Now, here's where we're all, everybody in the room, we're going to gather around the Word of God. You might say, well, preacher, I've been sitting here, I'm saved, and and I remember what God did in my life, but that's been many years ago. I'm not going to get re-saved. I'm saved exhaustively, eternally, and thoroughly, and surely. And that's true. But here in verse number 23, we all find a common place. If you're here lost without Christ, you ought to believe on Jesus Christ. Be saved. He'll give you a new song. He'll give you something to sing about. If you're already saved, then my question would be this. Are you singing? Are you rendering praise unto Him? 
Notice three things here in verse 23. Notice number one, the song of their praise. Sing of heavens, for the Lord hath done. In other words, the theme should be what God has done. You know, when God saves a person, their life ought to become all about Him. And the theme of their life should be about Him. Their song should be about Him. I don't believe God strips us of all identity when we get saved. But I do believe that when we get saved, we got something better to talk about than anything we ever had to talk about before. we got something better to sing about now than we ever had to sing about before. And the theme of our life should be what God has done in it through Jesus Christ. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. You say, preacher, what's this track thing uh, that y'all are doing? What's this track thing that y'all... We're just trying to go and tell people the Lord hath done it. That's it. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Done what? Well, when He saved us, He did it in our lives. He saved us. He, He did the greatest thing that could ever be done in our lives when He saved us by His grace. But He didn't just do it for us. He's done it for all humanity if they'll come unto Him and believe on Him. I see the song of their praise. I see the scene of their praise. I like this. Sing, O ye heavens. But he don't just stop at the heavens. He says, shout, ye lower parts of the earth. But he don't just stop in the valley. He goes up to the mountain. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest and every tree therein. Preacher, where should I praise him? You ought to praise him in the low places. That's what it says, isn't it? It says, shout, ye lower parts of the earth. And they ain't just talking about Louisiana. Somebody say amen. It's pick on Meg Day. I don't know why. Lower parts of the earth. I don't know about you. Sometimes I'm in some low parts of the earth. I wish it was all mountaintops. Boy, wouldn't that be nice. Although I will say this. If it was all mountains, then the mountains wouldn't look like mountains. They'd just look like low parts. I Listen, I'm thankful for the mountaintops a lot. But there's some times we all have to go through valleys. You say, preacher, what do I do when I go through the valley? Well, you just keep singing. Funny thing about it, you get in some of those, we like to go out west, you get in some of those box canyons out in South Dakota and some of them places, and you start singing in the mountain and it just carries, but you start singing in the valley and all of a sudden the valley starts singing back to you. You start hearing an echo. (laughs) And oftentimes in the low places of our life, you know what we'll find? If we'll go ahead and sing to Him, God will begin to sing back to us and give us the comfort that we need in those days and in those moments. Preacher, it's easy to praise Him on the mountain. Oh, I know, but it's precious to praise Him in the valley. You ought to praise Him in the valley, but not just on the valley. Hey, listen, even on the mountain you ought to be praising Him. That's what He says. Break forth into singing, ye mountains. Not just in the low places, but in the high places. And how oft do we forget to praise Him when He's delivered us from the valley that we've been walking through. I see the song of their praise and the scene of their praise, but notice finally, and I'm done, the substance of their praise. Well, what are they singing about? What's the first verse? What's the second verse? What's the bridge? What's the chorus? What are they singing about? Here's what they're saying. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Now you say, preacher, here I'm sitting, Gentile, East Tennessee, hillbilly. Why would I sing about what God's done in Jacob? But you're missing the greater point here. God said in the beginning of our text, I will not forget you. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have a plan for you. And remember, in many ways, Israel was representative of humanity at large. They were sort of the example of the fellowship or the revelation that God desired, the status that He desired for mankind. And He said, Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. i got a plan. I'll be faithful to that plan. Now down in verse 23, you know what they're singing about? God kept His Word. He did what He said He would do. 
And here's the, <laughs> I like this, here's the first verse. He kept his promise. He kept his promise. You know, one of the things the sinner immediately learns upon coming to Jesus Christ, that God keeps his promises. Because they are saved by the promise of God, by the word of God. We're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. The word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. How does that happen? Well, you as a sinner don't know you're a sinner until the Bible tells you you're a sinner. Then you exercise faith in that truth and you come to Jesus Christ by faith, believing that he'll save you. Why? Because he said he would save you. Then you find when you believe on him that he does exactly what he said he'd do. And you learn instantly, instantaneously, that He is a promise-keeping God. Can I tell you something? That's a lesson that never changes in the Christian wall. You know, one of the great themes of my life is God is faithful. He's faithful. He keeps His promises. He has not failed. Often in my life, I have failed. And there's been times it's looked like God has failed. But if I was a little patient, and if I looked a little closer, and if I got in my Bible, and if I got on my knees, I learned that God had not failed. That he had kept his promise. Preacher, what is this song that we Christians sing? Well, one of them that we ought to be singing with every tract that's handed out, with every testimony that's given, with every sinner that's spoken to, is God is a promise-keeping God. You can't save you, but he'll save you if you'll come unto him. He has kept his promise. But then I like this next one. And glorified himself in Israel. It's not the truth today. Today the Lord's not glorified in Israel. But one day he will be. The Bible tells us how he'll accomplish this and time would fail to go through categorically all the steps into how God will bring that about and bring that to pass. But here in this passage, he reminds them that at the very beginning, he had called them his servant. He had devised a plan for them to know him in fellowship and for him to get glory out of their life. And here's what he wants them to understand. He has kept his promise, but number two, he has accomplished his purpose. This can't be sung about Israel today, but one day Israel will sing this song. One day when they stand whole and healed before their king, their Messiah, their anointed one, whom they nailed to a cross, but in grace has bought them and saved them unto himself, they'll sing this song. But you know, we don't have to wait till that day to sing that song because we can say in our lives that God has and is accomplishing his purpose daily. God wanted to have fellowship with mankind. Can I ask you something? Is He accomplishing that in your life? Are you having fellowship with Him? God desired for us to be holy and separated unto Him. Has He accomplished that? I know He's done His part. Have you done your part? Can it be said in your life that the will of God and the purpose of God is being lived out and brought into reality day by day by your obedience unto Him? I hope you can say that. But if you can't say that, you ought to change that today. By bowing the head, the heart, the knee before him. Preacher, what did you, you come here to talk about today? I just came here to tell you the Lord hath done it. I just came to tell you it's a finished work that Christ did on Calvary. I came to tell you that if you're unsaved, you can be saved today. That you don't have to wait because he's accomplished what needs to be accomplished. He's just waiting on you. And I came to encourage every blood-washed, born-again believer to sing the praises of God for what he's done and accomplished in our life. I hope you'll do that this morning. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. And if you know you have business with the Lord, you don't have to wait for a note to be played. You can meet him down here in the altar. But I want to ask you a question. Every person in the room, can I ask you this question this morning? Could it be said of your life that God's getting glory out of it? Could it be said of your life that God, that His purpose and His desire and His design of fellowship and of glory from your is being accomplished day by day? 
Maybe you would say, well, I'm a large, I'm a whole preacher, that's true. But there is this one little needling area of my life where I know he's not pleased. Won't you come and talk to him about that area this morning? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.